0: and in case you forgot what the Emmaus wrote is is where Jesus met with a couple of disciples and he, he, he opened the Scriptures and showed them how every word of it was about Himself. He revealed to them stuff that they hadn't seen. And it's completely obvious because the difference between Acts 1 with Peter and then the times of Jesus' life before His death with Peter are night and day. Because in Acts 1, He picks up on something that we have to replace one of the disciples. And He goes to some obscure passage out of Psalms. Two of them, actually, to show how we have to have a 12th disciple. That tells me something. That the Holy Spirit was inside of Peter, because you see that at the end of the book of John, that Jesus breathed on him and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit happens in Acts 2. But there was something different to them, because they recognized things in the Word that they didn't recognize before. It's no different than how when um, Philip, I think it was Philip, the uh, eunuch, when he goes there and the guy's reading Isaiah 53 and he's like, I don't know what this means. How can I know unless someone explains to him? And that's what he does. He goes and he explains it to him, and stuff. Because why? Their eyes were opened. Others were not. Jesus opened their eyes and our eyes are opened because we have the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so what we've been doing is we've been going through it piece by piece, looking at different things. We talked about types and shadows, Christophanies, which are the appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, things like that. We talked about the covenants and how important it is to understand the covenants because the Bible is a covenantal book. God is a covenantal God. A covenant's nothing more than a contract. It's something that He puts in place and His promises for us as New Testament believers who are under the new covenant are promises based off of His work and not our own. Thank God for that because we'd be in a mess if it was based on us. And so last week we talked about the book of Genesis. And we went through it quickly, and we really only focused on the first 11 chapters and maybe a smidge into chapter 12, because there is so much in there. And we could spend a month on on Genesis. But eventually I would like to move on to something else. But today we're going to talk about Exodus. And as hard as I tried to put the book of Exodus into one week, it didn't happen. It's going to be two But it's going to be good because this week we're going to focus on a lot of the verses of of Exodus. Next week we're going to focus on the tabernacle because that in and of itself is amazing in light of the New Testament. Absolutely amazing. And so to do justice and be fair to this book and what I feel like the Lord has has been showing me, um, I split this up. That I didn't want to keep you here all day. So the one thing we need to understand about the book of Exodus is that it is central to the Old Testament. Everything talks about the Exodus. I mean, you get into the Psalms and books later, they go back to this point. It's got all these foreshadowings in it that point to the New Testament. And we talked about Moses and how he was a type of Christ. So we kind of know that, but, but also about the Passover, the Exodus event itself, and of course the tabernacle, which we'll talk about next week. So if you would flip over to Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 23. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Give you just a second to flip there. I do have it up on the screen. We were having a little bit of computer issue earlier, so if it goes haywire again, we may lose what's on the screen. But that's OK. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23, says this: "Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt... Died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. There's something significant here, because God told Abraham that his people would be brought into bondage. 400 years. And he said, this is what's going to happen. And so that, and it says, in the process of time, it doesn't give us an exact timeline in this chapter, but it's telling us that over time, here's what happened. The children of Israel begin to cry out because they're in bondage. They're in slavery, right? If you ever saw the movie The Ten Commandments, kind of picture that, you know, Charlton Heston... He's a pretty good Moses. I'd think Moses probably looked like him. But God hears their groaning. But the part I want to focus on is the second part of verse 24. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Don't think for a minute that God forgot. Because God doesn't forget. Why does it state the obvious here? It's an assurance to us that God doesn't change. He remembered his covenant, he heard the groanings, he told Abraham what was going to happen, but he never forgot his covenant and his promise that he made. He hears the cries of his people, he takes their pain seriously, and it shows that his promise to Abraham was unconditional. It didn't have conditions in it, he remembered it, he promised it, therefore he's going to do something about it. The overall theme of the book of Exodus is God's deliverance of His people and their redemption. Now, what does that point to? It points to Christ in and of itself. You're not going to find uh, redemption presented as some theological concept here, but you find it thematically. So in other words, it's not like the idea of redemption here is something that's saying, oh, because God redeemed us, then look to the, when Jesus comes, then that's what he's going to do. It's thematic. In other words, the theme of the book is redeeming the people. And you can see different types and shadows inside of this. Now, you have to look for these because it doesn't spell a lot of these out. But when you look at Egypt, imagine Egypt as a, a, a picture of the world, right? It's full of bondage, slavery. Wicked kings and rulers, people of God are being downtrodden. It makes sense. You can look at Pharaoh as the enemy, as Satan, as the adversary. He's the one who rebelled against God, and he seeks to keep the people from God's deliverance. No different than what the the enemy does today. It's the exact same. You can look at the nation of Israel during their bondage here while they're in Egypt. It represents mankind in the fallen state. Why? There's nothing they could do to pull themselves out of the situation they were in. Don't think they probably didn't try. I'm sure that they did. I'm sure many people ran away or did whatever to escape, but they couldn't. Why? They could never get away from that bondage. What is the bondage? Bondage is sin. What did Jesus set us free from? You're no longer under the power of sin. It's been broken. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. What are the plagues? The plagues demonstrate God's sovereign power. It points to the Redeemer. That God is doing the things, putting the things in place necessary to set the people free. Those things go further. And we're not going to talk about this today. I I talked about this in a Bible study. But if you study those ten plagues out, every one of them are a direct slap in the face of some Egyptian god that they worshipped. Every one of them. You can look at that. These weren't just our abstract things that God threw in there. God knew exactly what he was doing. He was showing that he is bigger than any other god out there. So you, you've got the plagues, you know, and then you get to the Passover. What is the Passover? And we'll talk about this in depth. But this is the blood of the lamb that was cut, that shed, And that they put it on their doorpost. And then when the the angel of death comes through, he passed over the houses that had the blood. Moses is pretty obvious. Moses was the deliverer. And the red seeds, it it represents baptism and it prefigures our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. So we're going to focus our attention here now on Moses. Now we've talked about Moses somewhat in depth. But um, we're going to take it a little bit farther, and we're going to look at some of the concepts here of what Moses was and how he prefigured Christ. Again, we've already talked about some of these, but we're going to kind of go through this fairly quickly, but not too quickly. Just, so one thing about Moses that we've got to represent is that he's the only biblical figure that filled the three offices of the prophet, priest, and king. He's the only one in the Old Testament except... In the New Testament, Jesus did the same thing. He fulfilled those roles. He, he, um, he was the prophet in that he was the mouthpiece of God. God would tell him something, he would proclaim it to the people, just like a prophet did all the way elsewhere. He was a priest in that he was the mediator between man and God. Many times you'd see Israel, and you see it in the book of Numbers, come to him and say, tell God to do this and we'll do that. He goes and delivers a message, God says something back. Hey, what is he doing? He's mediating, just like Christ did. He was the king in that he was the ruler over the people. He wasn't crowned a king in the sense that we think, but he was the ruler over the people. And Moses had a very unique relationship with God that many of the Old Testament priests, kings, prophets didn't have. He had what we would say is a face-to-face relationship with God. He saw God face-to-face. Look at Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. Exodus 33 and verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. How did God speak to Moses? Face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What are they telling us here? Moses' relationship with God was very unique. Look at Numbers chapter 12. Verses 6-8, through then he said, he being God, hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So he's talking about how he speaks to different prophets. We know that he will come physically and he will appear before them, but it's in dreams, it's in visions. Verse 7, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. What was the house of God back then? It was the tabernacle, the most holy place. Okay, verse eight. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now we don't. The last part of that is irrelevant to what we're doing today. But he talks to him face to face. He says, I talk to him plainly. I just lay it out there. I'm not giving him strange visions that need to be interpreted. I'm not giving him dreams that need to be interpreted. I'm just telling him like it is. It, Moses had a very unique relationship with God. And most of the typology that we see with him is based off of Moses' life events, not his direct relationship with God. It's, if you look at these, You will see it. And so we're going to go through. I'm just going to give you a list. I did this with Joshua last week. I'm going to give you a list with Moses because we've talked about Moses somewhat. And so I don't want to spend all my time here, but I want want you to see some of the things that correspond with Christ. The first one is that as a child, he was endangered, but he was rescued. And I think I've got, yeah, I've got these up and I've got the passages there that you can go and look at the comparisons. He was in danger, but he was rescued as a child. He was chosen to be saviors and deliverers of their people. Both Jesus and Moses, both of them were. They were the saviors and deliverers. They set their people free. They were both rejected by their people. They both did battle with the enemy. They both fasted for 40 days. They both took control of the sea. They both fed the multitudes. Both of their faces would radiate with the glory of God. Both of them were an advocate for their people, a mediator, if you will. Both of them would intercede for their people. They both engaged in healing ministries, primarily leprosy with Moses. And they both chose 12 messengers, and I found that unique when I started looking at that. That they both happened to choose 12. And these are just some. There are dozens of these things that you could go through and you can line these things up and look at the, the comparisons. And even in the New Testament, it compares Moses with Christ. We've looked at that before. That's why we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But the bottom line is, is when we look at the book of Exodus, this is laying the foundation of the redemption of mankind. It started with Abraham. You see, the, whole, the first 11 chapters, you can find everything you need theologically in those first 11 chapters. But you see the, the, the creation, you see the fall, you see God dividing the world, you see Him choosing for Himself a nation in Israel through Abraham, and here you see God setting His people free. Just like He does with us. No more bondage, no more sin, no more sickness. God healed their diseases. God took care of everything for them, as you're going to see here momentarily. So that's Moses in a nutshell, right? We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but we're going to talk next about the Passover. Now, the Passover is one of the seven feasts God instituted as His means. of was setting apart the firstborn of the Israel, Israelites for salvation. This process has a lot of similarities to the crucifixion of Jesus. And it shows us that salvation requires the shedding of innocent blood. Now, if you recall, when we first started this, we took the idea of the lamb all the way through from Genesis through Revelation. And saw how that progressive revelation set up. So again, we're not going to rehash that, but look at this. The first thing that it shows us that salvation requires the shedding of blood is they had to set aside a lamb that was without defect to be slaughtered. They had to go and choose one. He had to be perfect. Everything about it had to be perfect. He could not have one hair that was miscolored. Had to be perfect. The animals to be slaughtered at twilight and their blood is to be applied to the sides and the tops of the door frames of their houses. And maybe you've seen pictures of people doing it. But the top of the door frame would be here and then the sides kind of looking at a, like a cross type shape. That's something that we're putting into that. But no doubt there's some validity to that. But it had, the blood had to be applied. It wasn't enough just to slaughter it. The blood had to be applied. God reveals on the same night that it will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn man and animal that is bringing judgment on Egypt and her gods. The Lamb's blood will be His sign to pass over the houses of the Israelites who will avoid the plague. And He then commands them to celebrate this event as a festival to the Lord every year. Now putting all these things together, It's a picture of salvation. And we're going to look at at some verses here in a minute. But that, again, the, the blood had to be applied. Okay? If this is a picture of salvation, then this throws away any idea of the concept of universalism. The concept of universalism is that when Jesus died on the cross, His blood went for everybody. Therefore, there's nothing that we have to do in order to be saved because God did it for us. And yet in this picture, we do see that the lamb's blood was shed, but we were the ones that have to apply it. Once that blood's applied, then judgment no longer can befall the ones that it's been applied to. You guys see how that picture lays out? Again, we can look all over the place to get rid of bad theology. But that is a theology that is running rampant in the church today. Even in good churches that are Bible-believing churches have started to get over into this area without specifically saying it because they're missing stuff. They're saying that, well, you know, you just come as you are. And then just maybe, you know, you just say a prayer, repeat after me, bow your head, close your eyes, as if coming to the Lord is something we should be quiet about, ashamed of, not excited about, anything like that. And again, it's getting into the idea that we can make Jesus our Savior, but you don't have to make Him your Lord. No, that blood has to be applied. It has to be applied. So there are a lot of precursors that talk about this in the New Testament. Let's look at one, Romans chapter 3. You're going to see here in Romans chapter 3, the, they're, they're going to start talking about this event. And remember, this thing, the, ex, or the, the Passover and the Exodus and all of that, is central to everything because this is what really brought Israel into an, as a nation. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Stop there. This is separating the idea because we're Jews, we're made right with God. No, he's saying this is apart from the law, but it is through faith in Jesus Christ. What does faith in Jesus Christ do? It applies to the blood. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you have heard that verse a thousand times? Probably 10,000 times, probably a million times. You've heard it, you've quoted it, and yet we never, we stopped there. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody's perfect, it's okay. Keep acting like an idiot. You know, I mean, we, we, we stopped there. But look at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace, Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in other words, don't just stop with the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Go find the justification freely through His grace that is in Christ Jesus. Take it further. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation just means substitution. Through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. How do we see it? Through faith. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How many times did it say the word faith there? A whole bunch. I didn't count them. You can do it on your own time. But He is the one who's just. He is the one who's the justifier. All we have to do is use our faith in the blood, which means we just applied it. It's faith in Him. But He is the one who passed over the sins. This is pointing back to Exodus 12. It's pointing back to this event. This is Paul talking. You know Paul knows this. Look at John 1 and 29. And we've said this before. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about that when we went all the way through developing that lamb concept. But who was the Lamb of God that took away the sin? It was Jesus. As soon as John saw Jesus, he's like, that's him right there. This is the one we've been waiting for. But was Jesus our Passover? Well, Paul thought so. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. It says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now remember, leaven symbolized sin and it was a part of the Passover ritual. But they would remove it from the home and they'd always leave a little bit and then they would clean it up and they'd have this, this thing. But he's saying that purge out, in other words, get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new lump that since you are truly unleavened. In other words, get rid of all the nonsense. Christ was our Passover. Again, he's pointing back to this. It's amazing when you see these things start lining up. All the way from the beginning, this idea was here. This isn't a New Testament concept. This is an Old Testament concept. It's one book. This lamb had to be without defect. Could not have any defection in it. Like I said, one hair. In First Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or sil- silver, From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your father. Stop. What is he talking about? He's pointing back to the law. And and even beyond that, the traditions of your fathers. talking about God's law and then man's spin on it. You're not redeemed from that. You're not redeemed. This is aimless conduct. But look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. If you never read the book of Exodus, you have no idea what that means. Think about that. Because we know it, because we understand the Passover, we pick up on it, but we take for granted that aspect. If we just open up to the first first Peter, the very first time, and read this, we had not read anything else. We're like, why lamb without spot? Who cares? He's a lamb. Okay, I get it. But why without spot and blemish? Why? Because Jesus had to fulfill the Passover. He was that lamb. The lamb could have no broken bones. This was in in God's demand. In Exodus 12, in verse 46, it says this, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Talking about the lamb here. Has to be perfect. You can do no thing. But look at John 19, starting in verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, you could be sitting there like, well, that's a coincidence. You know, I mean, he was already dead. Why would they break their legs? Why does that, how does this even tie back to this? Well, let's read on. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he who was seen has testified, and his testimony is true, for he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Verse 36, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture said, they shall look on him who they pierce. And that's a different point. But where did in Exodus, when it's talking about the Passover lamb, did it ever talk about it needing to be fulfilled? It didn't. Who said all of these things, the law and the prophets need to be fulfilled? Jesus did. Matthew 5. You're seeing how these things are tying together. They're going back and forth. How and why were the Israelites spared in the Passover? They had faith and took God at His word and that the blood of the lamb would cover them from the judgment of God. They had faith in God's word. God told Moses, Moses told the people, I need you to go and I need you to get a lamb. It needs to be perfect. It can have no spot or blemish. Don't break its bone. Here's the things that you need to do to prepare for that. But you've got to apply that blood. And if you apply that blood, then when God comes through and judgment is fallen upon the whole land, both Israelite and Egypt, because if they didn't do that, what happened? Their firstborn would die. But if you follow the the directions and apply that blood, then you will be spared. That has the New Testament all over it, showing us how Jesus was our Passover. And when we apply the blood, we are spared from the judgment of God. OK, that's enough about the Passover. We are going, just so you know, when we finish this part of it, this whole thing of this thing, I am going to teach you on the Seven Feast, because there's a lot of prophetic significance on it, and we will go into a lot of detail there. We need to know this stuff. That is something that tragically was lost through church history, that we as New Testament believers have lost sight of, and it is, it is a beautiful picture of Christ. Uh, but we, we're, we'll talk about that in depth later. So let's look at the Exodus event. It was the most important event in salvation history. Remember, the Bible is a book about salvation history. It's not complete history. It's about the history that is uh, uh, intrinsic in what God was doing, and that we had to know. The Exodus was promised to Abraham, and it was a central theme of Moses' farewell address as he's getting ready to go. He's talking about this. And it was a significant point in Joshua's address for their covenant that they're getting ready to cut and check him, that they were celebrating their victory over their enemies. And you see it a lot of times, it was sung by the psalmist, and it was invoked later by the prophets. I mean, they would talk about it. The bottom line is, the Exodus event was a big deal. It was a big deal to God, it was a big deal to the nation of Israel, it needs to be a big deal to us. As a matter of fact, there are archaeology and historians that deny the Exodus ever took place, because they can't find any evidence. Well, the problem is, they're looking in the wrong place, and they're looking in the wrong time. Their timeline screwed up. Everything goes off of Egyptian clock, and the Egyptian clock is wrong. There's a movie that came out called The Patterns of Evidence. It's on Netflix. If you get an opportunity, watch it. It is fantastic. I went down to St. Joe and watched it when they had a one-night release, and I happened to catch it two days before. I'd never even heard of it. It was three hours long. It was worth every minute. That guy goes through and shows how you can trace the Exodus and finds the history and the archaeology, and it's incredible. You need to see it. It's very well done. But the Exodus itself points to the work of Christ in salvation. It represents judgment on the world and salvation for God's people. They would leave Egypt, and they had Pharaoh's blessing when they did this, but he would later change his mind, right? He's like, what are we doing? Why are we letting these people go? And so as they're escaping the Egyptians, they begin to chase them down, and then they come to the Red Sea, and we know that story, but I want to read it. Okay, I don't want to take for granted that we all know where we're at in this, and we've all seen it, so flip over to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we're going to read a lot here. It is up on the screen. We're going to start at verse 5. So this is after they released him. This is the part where Pharaoh's getting ready to change his mind. Now it was told that the king of Egypt, that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took six hundred choice chariots and all the chariots of, the Egypt, of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptian pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea, besides Pi, and I'm going to attempt to say this, ha Haroth, before baal Verse 10, and when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? They just get relieved from, released from slavery and are already whining. Ten minutes later, it didn't take long. It's like kids, right? Verse 12, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptian for it would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptian than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. This is prophetic. This is Moses doing his thing. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptian, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, and the angel of God. Now stop there for a second. That should bring up some memories here because we talked about the angel of the Lord. Many times we, I say that this is a Christophany, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud, and the darkness to the one, being Egypt, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So here we see this cloud, this pillar of cloud. Just remember that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and he troubled the army of the egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty and the egyptians said let us flee from the face of israel for the lord fights them against the egyptian i mean i don't know about you but when i was growing up i didn't picture god popping the wheels off the chariots to give them that much harder of a time i mean that's just i don't know interesting to me Verse 26 Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and that, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on the chariot and on the horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. That's the Exodus. They escape by the provision of God. Right? It was God doing it. Who did he use? He used Moses. Who did he tell to put out his hand and spread the waters? He told Moses. Who did he tell to put it back? He told Moses. Did he need Moses? Probably not. He's God. But he chose Moses. He picked Moses. He used Moses. But you should have picked up on a couple of things here. We talked about that, The angel of the Lord, right? That is Christ. And where did you see him? It was the fire and the cloud. It says that God looked down upon them through the fire and through the cloud. Where was God? in the fire, and in the cloud. Now, this is something that we kind of overlook and we kind of throw off the side. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 actually tells us what this is and what is going on here. This is Paul talking. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. We'll talk about that in a minute. All ate, drank the same spiritual drink. We'll talk about that in a minute. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Go back and look at that first verse, first and second verse. All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized, baptized meaning immersed, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What is this a picture of? It should be a picture of our entire salvation experience. What is Moses a type of? A type of Christ. How are we saved? How are we born again? It's by grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, right? So if Moses, we are baptized into Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that. That's just a couple chapters away from here. You also see it in Galatians 5, how we're baptized into Christ. Through the sea, we're baptized in water. Right? Because you could say this, that they were all baptized into Moses, they were all in the cloud, and they were all baptized in the sea. So in the sea would be the baptism in water, which we consider the second part of salvation, that in other words, we we're, we're dying to our old self, we're coming up new. But the cloud is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. That they were baptized into Moses to salvation, they were baptized in the sea, the same thing that we are, but they're baptized in the cloud. This is a picture of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we never would have picked up on if it wasn't for Paul. You see, he's laying the foundation of these are crucial to what we do. There's a reason for this. And he tells us in verse 6, now these things become our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Look down at verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Why were these things written down? He's talking back to the events of Moses. Why were they written down? It's for our benefit, so that we could see it. So we could come up, we're not come up with some new theology in the New Testament. No, the new theology in the New Testament always has the foundation of the old. It points back to the beginning. In Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 14, all of these things are laying here one after another. They're for our benefit. We should see the salvation, the baptism in the Christ. We should see the baptism in the water, and we should see the baptism in the Spirit. We should see all of these things, and this was the foundation of that. It was for our example. All right, so it talked about they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. Let's talk about that. That's manna, right? In Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 2, Exodus 16 and verse 2, And they journeyed from Elam. Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So they're two and a half months gone, not that long. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Exodus, the Red Sea thing, was two chapters prior to this. I mean, two chapters in, they're already whining again. After they saw what happened to the Red Sea, what did it say? Look back to the last verse. Then Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses, and they forgot two chapters later. Sound like anybody you know? Don't look around. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not, and it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your complaints against the Lord. But that, what are we? That you complain against us. Also, Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Here's the cloud again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that, that quails came up, the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of the dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So it was tiny. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Okay, so this is the idea of manna. This is where it comes from. It talks about it in the New Testament, but more importantly, again, they point back to this. In fact, manna is in the Ark of the Covenant, which we will talk about next week. But it was, it was important that, enough that it was placed in there, so it has significance. The manna represents Christ in two different ways. First, it represents God's provision, right? God took care of their needs. He provided for them all along the way. All, even when they're, they're out in the wilderness for 40 years, He provides for them. Their sandals don't wear out. They never have a lack. They always have what they need. But also, it points to another thing, and this is where you have to go into the New Testament to find this, is Christ is all the people need. Manna is pretty much their sole nourishment until they enter into Canaan, and that's where they stop eating it. But we can see that God's provision here, but how does manna point to Christ? Well, let's look. John chapter 6, and verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? He's talking to Jesus. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. We just read that verse. Then Jesus said to them, "Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to to the world. Who is He? It's Jesus. Jesus just told us that He was the bread that was given. He was the sustenance that was provided. He was all that they needed, just like us. We say that all the time. He is all we need, but we don't live like it. Even in their, their time here, I mean, God is providing, providing, providing. It's not just provision in the sense of our physical provision. That's part of it. It's our spiritual provision. That manna was a spiritual picture of Christ. Are you going to pick that up by reading Exodus 16? No, you're not. You have to, again, go back and forth. Look at this. All of this stuff points to Christ. Well, what about that rock that falls around? Because, again, I'm going to go back and read this. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What is this drink that they're talking about? Well, this is the rock in Exodus 17. We're going to start in verse 1, Exodus 17 and verse 1. And I'm almost done, I promise. Then all the congregation of the ch- children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephitim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you not tempt the Lord? Or tempt the Lord could be saying, Why don't you go to him? Why are you coming to me? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So first it was, why would you bring us out of Egypt to be killed by the Egyptian when things were good? And then they go through the Red Sea, oh God, you're so good, thank you so much. And then two chapters later, God, did you bring us out here to starve? Why didn't you leave us back there where there was plenty of food? And then God provides for them, oh God, you're so good. And then the next chapter, hey, we're th- thirsty. I mean, it's like a bunch of toddlers. I need a snack. She touched me. He's looking at me. I mean, that's basically what they're doing. Oh, all right. Where did I leave off? Sorry. I have, I have kids. Can you tell? It's like just, it's just rolling. Uh, OK, verse four. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, "What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And you will see this same rock mentioned again in Numbers chapter 20. And we will talk about that when we get there. So just know that it is mentioned here twice. But at that time, he's told to speak to the rock. This time, he's told to strike the rock. And that's significant. This is why Moses didn't get, in, get to enter in the promised land in Numbers chapter 20, because he struck the rock where he was told to speak to it. So this rock, how on earth does this rock point to Christ? Well, we've actually already read it but you may not have picked up on it. 1 Corinthians 10 chapter one, or chapter 10, verse 1 again. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul tells us directly who the rock was it was Christ. He doesn't say it was a type of Christ. He says, he doesn't say it was like Christ. He says that it was Christ. Is this a Christophany, according to Paul? He doesn't give any analogous language here. He doesn't say it was like, it was saying that, and this rock apparently followed them all the way through because you see it again in Numbers 20. This is a Christophany. But what does this have to do with Christ? I mean, how is it? A type of Christ. How is it pointing to Jesus? Well, let's look at John chapter 19. I'm gonna ask you to flip to the next couple ones if you would, because I'd like you to to underline some stuff and write some stuff down. If you would, if you can. John chapter 19, and we're gonna start in verse 31. John nineteen and verse thirty-one. Therefore. Because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. We already read this. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and immediately blood and water came out, and he who was seen has testified his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe so john's laying out an an argument here these people saw this and the reason they saw that is they're telling you the truth so you can believe their eyewitness but what about this whole concept of the spear going in and blood and water flowing there's a physical aspect to it certainly Because the blood and the water will separate when somebody dies. No question about that. But when we look at the rock and we start bringing in what Jesus says about this water, what is the blood of Christ? Well, we saw earlier that it is redemption, right? It has to be applied. But what about the water? Let's look at John 4. Flip back a few pages. John 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, this is John the Baptist, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. And one thing you need to note: they did not go through Samaria. They went around Samaria. Jesus needed to go through Samaria because Jesus had work to do there. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You'd have to go back to the Old Testament to find that. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, see what I was saying before. They hated each other. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now remember, think about that rock. In the same, they drank the same spiritual drink. You see Paul's telling us there's spiritual application here, not just physical. So who gave the water? It was Christ, right? He gave the water. He was saying that if you come to me, that you'll never thirst in, because the water that I give you, the spiritual water that I give you, that's what Paul's talking about, is living water. So we know who gives the water certainly is Christ. But what is the water? Look at John 7. John chapter 7. Just a couple chapters later. Starting in verse 37. On the last day... That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is the water? It's the Holy Spirit. You see, even back in Exodus, it's pointing ahead to all of these things. And if we do a good job of using proper exegesis and going through Scripture, we will pick up on all these things because they're there. I mean, these are breadcrumbs all the way throughout. The problem is, is we don't chase them. We stop it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't go beyond that. Well, what are you talking about? We don't read something about, on the great, in verse 30, on the great day of the feast. Well, what feast? What great day? What are you talking about? How can we figure out what that day is? Why does it matter? What is the significance? We stop. But we see all of this stuff pointing to Christ. And all of this stuff, a picture of our salvation experience, or at least what it should be. That we're baptized into the body. That we're baptized in water. And that we're baptized in the Spirit. For what purpose? That the living water would reside in us. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes in us when we're born again. But that living water that perfudes from us, that just comes out of us, can only become from the baptism in the Holy Spirit when we're given it to Him. You see, Christ laid out all of these things for our benefit. Why are all these things written down? So that we can look at them. So we can see them. So we can learn from them. So we can study them. So that we can use our Bible and say from beginning to end it's got one common principle, one common theme. It's the blood of Christ. It's salvation history.